You could have a million connections to someone that doesn't even care about anything you have to say, but just having like a hundred people that are really interested in what you have to say and really that, you know, love you as a person is so much more valuable than having a million people that have actually no idea who you are, but liked your post one time or pushed follow one time. Welcome to the Social Complex Podcast, where we are diving into the complex impact and influence of social media on brands, brains, and the bigger picture of our modern world. Here's your host, Hillary Applegate. Welcome back to another episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Today's episode is all about creators. We're joined by TikTok creator Victoria Jameson to talk all about life as a, you guessed it, creator. The ups, the downs, and the all-arounds, including creator commerce, mental health breaks, how to navigate comparison, and shine in your own unique way. Victoria is a hair and makeup artist who started creating content years ago under the app Musical.ly, which is now known as TikTok. Victoria offers a refreshing look at the realities of sharing your life online, opens up about her own personal journey navigating the balance between real world and curation, and shares encouraging perspectives for creators everywhere. You will walk away with an idea of what it's like to walk in a creator's shoes, how influencers can negotiate more effectively with brands, and how to navigate your own line on how much of your life you're willing to share. Let's get into it. Victoria Jameson, how are you? Great to have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm super excited about this. I haven't filmed a podcast in my new apartment yet, so this is like perfect timing. First look, I see the couch in the back. We've got some greens going. It's it's a whole setup. You almost would, I would say you're a creator by trade. Just a little bit, just a little bit. I like designed my living room with the idea that like, okay, well, this is going to be the background of all my videos because I only have a living room and a bedroom. So you do have to be thoughtful. And in this day and age, what's behind you really does matter because that is what everybody's looking at. And I cannot deny that I've scoped out the back of a Zoom call where everybody's living and what their situation is. Yeah. It's like someone's like bedroom with like a laundry basket on the bed. Like, I don't know. You just want to look a little bit more put together. That All that stuff's in my room. <laughs> yeah. I, I have no shame about the curation for a feed. That's why I have this beautiful little um, wall behind me with my wallpaper that I did. If you look really closely, you can 100% tell that it was me doing it, but wallpaper so hard though. Oh. I like, I bought reusable wallpaper for this wall and I just never even attempted it. Cause I was like, it's going to be too much. Work. I severely underestimated how much work it was going to be. And this one wasn't even a peel and stick. This was like a, you lather up the oh, wall man. and then you get it out. No, you should have seen me bright eyed and bushy tailed trying to get into this project. I have a thing. Day for one that, is great. Day, day one, one, you're always like, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. Like, I can't wait to paint this room. And then like by day three, you're like, oh my God, what have I done? Like, I just need to get this finished. <laughs> regret, regret. Oh, but for our audience who do are not familiar with you, let's give a little bit of introduction into you, who you are and what you do. Yeah. So my name is Victoria Jamison. I'm a content creator. I started out on the internet as more of like a makeup artist and talking about products and showing different looks. And through the pandemic, I 
got a lot of growth on TikTok or I had a lot of growth on TikTok. And so that's become my main platform. And I've kind of expanded my brand into talking about DIY projects and lifestyle. I hate that word, but like just like whatever I'm doing in life. And I'm also super passionate about social media and how people can use it to build their business and their personal brand and support whatever endeavors they are in. So the pandemic, I think, showed us that social media has a lot more power than people previously realized as the power to make and break careers. So I love nerding out about marketing and all the stuff behind everything that goes on online. I love it. You and I are kindred spirits. And uh, when we had our original conversation, we're just like chatting up a storm and we're like, oh, shoot, we need to wrap this up. Let's save it for the podcast. We're getting into too many nooks and crannies. For sure. So what originally even drew you to social media? How did you how did it even get on your radar as something that you're like, oh, this is something that I'm passionate about and interested in? For me, it started in middle school, way back in the day with MySpace. When MySpace first came out, I was like, this is so cool. Like, I was an only child. I grew up moving a lot. And I remember like AIM was kind of like right before MySpace or at the beginning of MySpace. And I could use AOL Instant Messenger to talk to my friends. And I moved a lot. So it was cool to like keep up with them on that. And then MySpace added a whole new element to it where you could like post photos and like customize it and make it reflective of who you are and put your favorite music and talk to people. And it had a, it had a culture to it as well, which I really liked. And I was really into all the music and everything from that era. So I would say... The community aspect, I guess, drew me to it originally when I first got online way back in the day, probably around 2006, five era, somewhere in there. Um, I was also a big fan of YouTube, early, early, early YouTube too. So kind of the creative aspect and the community aspect really made me interested in it. And I thought like, wow, this is really cool. I was seeing people build careers with it even back then. So um, I think it was always something that interested me, but I never really saw it coming to fruition, I guess. I was young, but I never imagined myself doing it full time. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Were there other parts of your life where you felt like you were more creatively driven or artistically driven? Like what were you doing after school, before school? What was kind of capturing your attention? Yeah. So I have danced my whole life. I actually was a dance major in college. So my days were dance classes pretty much. And after school, it would be, you know, straight to rehearsals. So I was doing a lot of creative stuff in that aspect, but it was very like structured creativity. So I think I liked the idea that I could break out a video camera with my friends and goof around and sing the Pokemon theme song like we saw Smosh do on YouTube. And that was like something that was fun. And I liked the editing process of the videos. I liked the creative process. I liked filming. And then I liked being able to put it up there and share. And that was really the first time I guess we had access to anything like that. It almost felt like you were a producer at that point because no, there, there wasn't like a brand presence and you were able to get that up online with, and no one knew what was happening. It, it was just like you, the only thing way you would be able to consume that type of media is if you went to the movie theaters and all of yeah, a sudden it was like a whole kids, new world. It was, it was crazy. What was your MySpace song? Like your favorite one? Do you remember? Oh my gosh. I had so many. Um, <laughs> 
I had like random Andre Nicotina as a kid on my I'm trying to think. Okay, I definitely discovered the band Frightened Rabbit from MySpace, which this was like in the later stages of MySpace. There's so many bands I discovered that don't exist anymore. There was this website and I think it was called Pure Volume and you could go and download music for free. Like bands would put their music on there and I have so much music that like I don't even know who those people are like if that band exists anymore. Did you have the hair? Oh, I had the hair. I had the hair. Not as cool as some girls had the hair. That's what that's what I mean, though, by like MySpace had a culture like we see, you know, Instagram has a culture. Facebook has a culture. TikTok has a culture. So I think that the MySpace era got me interested in the idea that like these platforms do have a culture and a vibe and and trends that they set. I think it's funny because I see people that post memes that are like, can we just go back to MySpace when people just there was no selling and no brands and no this and no that. And I'm like, no, there were all those things. You just weren't paying attention. Like some of the biggest people on social media now started on MySpace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. And I will say, I think it's interesting that you bring up the fact of culture on the different platforms, because I feel like for a better part of a decade, music was kind of lost from MySpace. Like MySpace just had that magic with music. But now with Mm -hmm. TikTok, I feel like we're seeing music really take like that original content, original music really kind of come back to fruition. You know, what's funny is I never even thought about it like that, but I remember like my friends' bands would get like, they would sign record deals because of MySpace. Yeah. And we're seeing that happen all over again. I never even thought about it like that. That's a good observation. I didn't until you were talking and I'm like, whoa, hold up. It was extremely music driven. And then they even had their Mm -hmm. own label, didn't they? I think they did. They, and they tried to stick around as a music platform, but it just paled in comparison. What's so funny is MySpace could have been such a powerhouse if it had been done right, but there was no examples for them, yeah. like how to do it right. Algorithms didn't exist yet. Monetization of social media was not a concept yet. Like ads, I guess people were running them on like blogs and web pages, but not to the extent they are now. So uh, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if MySpace had stuck around a little longer. I know. It's really funny. We're talking about MySpace because there is a friend of mine that I met when, you know, like when you're a kid and you go on vacation with your family and then you meet that other kid that's at the pool with his family and you're like, Hey, we're buddies now. And he lived in Scotland and we met in Tahoe and I was 14 and we're just like buddies. He sends me, we're still in touch today. He ended up actually dating one of my really good friends for a long time. And Stop, that's so funny. He sent me a picture today that says myspace.com slash far from where I used to be. And I saw it and I was like, oh my gosh, that's my handwriting. And it was like on the hotel note, I had given him my MySpace URL when I was 14 Stop. so we could stay in touch. I was like, Oh my gosh, I love that so much. I think I got started on social media actually from Neopets, but I don't think you can consider that social media. That was like gaming kind or it was such I an early know. predecessor to social media. I think it because they had like forums, but it was more anonymous. It was more like Reddit, but with pets. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot of like the chat rooms really were kind mm-hmm. of the first place and yeah. the in the forums and whatnot. And it's also 
kind of creepy to think about. But when we were kids, like our parents didn't really know that as a frame of reference Mm -hmm. that that was out there. So it's Mm -hmm. like they didn't even know to look out for it as far as like, a oh, you shouldn't be going there. (laughs) So Yeah. And even I had had very helicopter parents and like I still don't think they entirely knew. Just like now, I, I think, you know, there's so much going on that it's hard to pay attention to every little thing your kid's doing. I, kids on social media is a whole nother ball game. Like I can't even fathom having to can keep track of someone else's interactions online. Like there's just so much that goes into that. But yeah, so MySpace is really what started it all for me. And um, YouTube was really where I got interested in video editing and video production. And it kind of just continued as a, a strain throughout my life, like having to film a video dance audition. Like I kind of had those skills. I really liked Photoshop too. I was like learning how to use Photoshop just for fun. So it it really did start out as like a hobby initially. That's awesome that you have that creative drive that is pushing you to want to explore and learn. And I do think that there's something within the creative field where people really are more tinkerers, where it's like you, you, you might not know how to do something right now, but you can learn how to do it. And you're curious enough to be like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and teach myself or I'm going to utilize the resources around me to really make something of it so that I can keep contributing and learn. Yeah. I think that people don't value the concept of like having a true hobby anymore. I think everyone wants to monetize their hobbies, which is fine. Like I'm the like most guilty of that. Here I am. But I think just if I had been thinking about it from a monetization standpoint, I guess when I was, you know, 13, I wouldn't have done it. Like I would have been like, Oh, I don't know how to do that. Why would I waste my time doing that if I'm not going to make money doing it? Or I was truly doing it just because I thought it was fun and interesting. And sometimes you never know where that can lead. But I do think there's a lot of value in learning stuff like that just to learn it because you never know when it might come in handy. Yeah. So how has your relationship with social media evolved as you've gotten older? I think that when I was younger, I put a lot more value in vanity metrics and personal branding in a sense, or like portraying yourself in a specific light, if that makes sense, or like curating yourself, I guess, Mm -hmm. is what I'm trying to say. I think as I've gotten older, and especially as my career in social media has become more prominent and more important in my life, I've realized that that curation and that persona and that like vanity metric of like, oh, look how many people liked my posts, like doesn't actually matter like at all. And I think people put so much emphasis on it. It can kill your creativity and your impact that you could have. So it sounds crazy, but like the bigger I've grown and the more reach I've had, the more I've realized that those things don't matter as much as being like authentic and building authentic connections. Cause you could have a million connections to someone that doesn't even care about anything you have to say, but just having like a hundred people that are really interested in what you have to say and really that, you know, love you as a person is so much more valuable than having a million people that have actually no idea who you are, but liked your post one time or pushed follow one time. What do you think was the moment or a time in your life where that really became clear for you? Oh, man. So in 2015 is when I first really got onto Musical.ly, which eventually became TikTok. And I 
had my own business. I was selling makeup and doing makeup professionally for like photo shoots and weddings and stuff. And I saw all these girls around me. That's, that's this was like the height of beauty, like YouTube, basically. Like that was really when it was ramping up, like Jaclyn Hill era. And I remember seeing these girls and thinking like, oh my gosh, my life would be so much easier if I could just like have that many followers. Like I would sell so much more. I would book so many more clients. I could do brand deals. Like I remember thinking like my life would be so much better and easier if it was like that, if I had that reach and that impact and that platform. And over the, you know, the years I, I learned and I was growing at a pretty like steady rate for the time period and having conventional success, like I was supporting myself, I um, ended up getting married to someone else who was a content creator. And during our marriage, both of us gained over a million followers across platforms. And I remember thinking, like sitting there and being like, okay, this is it why isn't life easier and better? Like you just have the exact same problems on a different scale, if not more, because you have a million eyes watching you. And so that's when I really started having to do like a lot of soul searching and therapy and figure out like why I was having the same problems I was having when I had five followers as when I had 900,000 followers on TikTok. So I think like going through that huge growth really quickly made me realize that it really is just a number. And if you don't have the stability behind it, it can only like that number can only take you so far. So going back in time, if you could go back and have a conversation with yourself to say, hey, this is what's coming. This is what I would advise you to do to help yourself with this growth or in general, what advice would you give to someone that would be going through that? Hmm. It's a good question. I think first of all, going to therapy, that helps a lot. I think it's hard because especially in a career in social media, like typically you don't have a lot of people around you that are in this space that understand, like, I remember so vividly, like venting to some of my friends about like this happened and then this happened. And then someone commented this on my page and they're like, okay, like, I don't understand like why that matters. Or even like a brand that stiffs you for a brand deal. And you know, you're having to like, they're giving you the go around trying to get paid. They're like, well, why don't you just get a normal job? And it's like, okay, well, I don't want a normal job. Like I want to do this. So having, um, someone that not, maybe not the therapist is the right word, but having like a good support system for people in the community. Like now I'm definitely more plugged in with like women that are in this space. I can text and be like, oh my gosh, I just need to vent or like, Hey, what would you do in this situation? Having people around me that get it, which is kind of actually why I started my podcast talking to creators is because, I feel like the community aspect now has helped me so much. And I wish I had been plugged into a creator community earlier on, I think. Isn't that interesting how the creator community in general, like creators are all about creating community and their own communities. And you're so focused on your own lane for so long that you forget that the saying it's lonely at the top is very real. And no matter what success you have, whether it is in social media or whether it is professionally, whatever it may be, that community becomes so important 
because you do, like you said, you need to be able to have someone that can hit back with something that's going to be helpful and not just, oh, well, why don't you go get a real job? Or why don't you go do yeah. this? And you're like, this is a real it Because it's such a unique industry. Like, I still consider myself to be, you know, a makeup artist first and foremost, even though I do have this like large platform, because I always say there's people that are career creators and then there's lifestyle creators. And because I went from a career creator to a lifestyle creator, making content about my daily life and not having a normal nine to five job, I think it's really easy to lose yourself in that. And I think having creators, other creators around you for support in that process can only add value as long as they're the right people. You know, you don't want to be playing the comparison game. I think early on, I definitely did that when I was younger, but I think now there's obviously enough people in the world where everyone can be successful on social media if that's what you want to do. So I think, um, not having like a scarcity mindset and having a good community and having an identity outside of just what you're posting is so, so, so important. Like I wish I could go back and tell myself to like separate my personal identity more from the content I was putting out online. What do you feel helped you separate those two things? I think giving myself permission not to have to put my entire life on the internet. I think we see those creators that like, I follow girls that like say the wildest shit and they, oh, am I allowed to cuss? Yeah, go for it. Live your best okay. life. You can, you can delete it if you want. I, I, no. I see <laughs> people that say the wildest stuff online. Like, you know, they go and film the guy they're hooking up with's bathroom and rate the things. Like we live in a world where that guy is definitely going to see that content. And if mm -hmm. another guy goes to her page and sees that and wants to go on a date with her, like he's probably going to be like, uh, I don't know. I don't want you going through my bathroom. Like, I think I realized it's okay to approach social media as a portion of yourself. It doesn't have to be your whole self. And I think a lot of people go into it with the idea that people that are putting their lives out there, like especially these like mommy bloggers and daily vloggers and stuff from YouTube, like they're like, this is, this is it. This is them. But in reality, it's not all of them. Like, I think you still have to have part of your life for you. And that's, I think I felt a lot of pressure to put everything out there. And I'm realizing now it's okay for it to be a piece of your career. It doesn't have to be all of you. And I think there's a lot of value in staying grounded and having something that's not out there for everyone. Like uh, I got divorced during the pandemic, which I had a lot of fear about because I had made content in the past with my ex-husband and there was a lot of judgment there of like, well, what are people going to think? What are my followers going to think? What am I going to say? And in reality, I just said nothing because it's actually no one's business. And I'm not obligated to give anyone an explanation on anything about my personal life. And moving forward, I've said like, I'm not going to include whoever I date in, in the future in my content just because that's my business. Yeah. This is how I make money. So keeping my personal life personal and my business life business online I think it sounds different than what most consumers view social media as, but I think as a creator, it's important to have that in the back of your mind, even when you're starting you, out, because you can like set yourself up for failure. Do you feel like that pressure was more external or internal or both? 
I think it's a little bit of both. I think that people get a lot of validation online from being vulnerable. And sometimes I think Brene Brown talks about this. I There's literally talks about this. just thought of Brene yes. Brown. <laughs> like, like weaponized vulnerability in a way or like being vulnerable for attention, not being vulnerable to help others. Like I realized that if I was sharing, if I was being vulnerable, you know, there's a lot of people out here who are like, speak your truth. But like, I think we can recognize that in the moment, sometimes our truth is not productive for other people in that situation, especially when it is real life. Mm -hmm. Like, I think for me, going through my divorce, I realized, you know, I could go online and talk about this, but it would not be productive long-term. Like it might make me feel better in the moment to have people that are like, yeah, you go girl. But like in the long run, is that helping anyone? No, like it's just making me feel better. So I think we see a lot of people online that are getting a lot of validation for being vulnerable we're not also thinking about the consequence of that vulnerability for other people in real life. Um, so I think part of the, I guess to answer your question, part of the pressure I think is from seeing other people doing it and being like, wow, yeah. look how many views they're getting. Look how much feedback they're getting. Look how much affirmation they're getting. And the other part is like, wow, I want that. But then in reality, you have to be like, okay, is that actually going to make me feel better? Probably not. So I think it's a real thing that people who are in the creator world do run into, which is it something feels wrong for me to do this internally, but externally I'm looking at it and I'm like, oh, this could be not even great content, but it could be so fulfilling to talk to the community and have that openness. But at the same time, everybody is allowed to set their own limitations. And you said therapy earlier. I am a huge proponent of therapy and I think that everybody needs it, but especially creators because you are dealing with not just the normal inner circle feedback. You're dealing with feedback at all realms. So you're dealing with the impact of what everybody in the world is saying that's watching you from wherever they are all the way down to the people in your inner circle in real life and people who don't understand you or people that are going to, you know, take what you put online or what your persona is and then retract that because they think that they, you know, it's not adding up or whatever it may be for them. So I think that therapy is incredibly important and (laughs) that's my therapy plug. But also for you with the vulnerability thing, absolutely. hundred percent. You see it everywhere. Did you see that video of the doctor that was like in the hallway talking about how they just lost a patient and they yes. had their, yes. oh, oh my gosh, that is like case and point. And everybody roasted the internet saw through it. I feel like it's because it's been like, yeah, we've seen it. Like we get that your job's hard. Like, okay. Like prop mad props to healthcare workers. Like I can literally can't imagine <laughs> But like it almost like desensitizes it when it's put on the internet in a certain way. Well, it feels theatric. Yes. And it but it is theatric. I mean, we can't ignore the fact that social media is theatric. I think Exactly. Our brains want to think that it's real. Yeah. Yes. When people are crying into the camera, if that is your theatrical way of expressing yourself, even if your expression internally is authentic. 
cool, but it's still theatric. Like no one accidentally gets a selfie video of them crying. It's not an accident. Yeah. But then, okay. So then to give like a flip side example of that, like, I don't know if you follow Laura Cleary, but she's um, a creator that I really look up to and admire her content because she's super authentic and she's written two books about her life and you know, talks about like going through addiction and her husband as well. And even in her last book, she talked about infidelity that they had experienced in their relationship. Like it's stuff that like people don't really talk about. And she posted a video of her in her car after I think it was her second baby, like literally having a mental breakdown, just like sobbing, ugly crying and being like, I just do not know what I'm doing. Like, I think there are moments of like pure, true vulnerability. And then there are moments of like orchestrated vulnerability, if that makes sense. And yeah, it's hard to say like what has value and what doesn't. But I think that like when you see someone being vulnerable in a, in a way that is not uh, building them up in a way, if that makes sense, like it's not making them look better. It's truly just being vulnerable and sharing. I think that that can be admirable, but obviously it can't be the only content you create. It has to have some balance too. Yeah. And you can't go into it with the idea that it's going to improve your likes or your engagement rate or your followers like that. The intention of it, I think is what is going to make or break it to be a real connection, you know? It's so hard because there are people that share like everything about their life online that even those people that you think like, oh, they're sharing everything there, there has to be things that they're not sharing. So I think there's that pressure when you, you watch people and you think like, oh, they're just so vulnerable. Like they just put it all out there. And you also don't think about the impact that putting it all out there has on the people in their real life. That really like hit home for me. Like once I started getting visible content on TikTok, a guy was like, I have to be careful. Like what I say, Mm -hmm. you know, not everyone wants their personal lives on the internet. So I think just being aware of and respectful of other people's boundaries too. Like it's when you tell a story, it's not just you that's in the story. Like there's other people in your life. People figure out by context clues, like not everyone wants their personal lives on the internet. So yeah, I think if I could go back, I would definitely separate my personal brand more from my identity. I would put it in a box a little bit more. I think it would make the identity crisis of having content that doesn't perform well easier because then it's not me that people don't like. It's mm-hmm. the video I made. Yeah. And that's an important distinction for creators that are wrapped up in this, especially ones that feel like they are putting so much of their life online. That identity can definitely get wrapped up in it. So let's talk about creators. Let's talk about a broad stroke, the okay. industry as a whole. What are the characteristics of successful creators in today's world? The first thing comes to mind is consistency. Like if you're inconsistent in content creation and what you're putting out there and showing up, especially when you're kind of in the big growth phase of your career, I'm definitely guilty of not being as consistent in the last year, but I also had personal life things going on that kept me from that. I think being business-minded is a huge distinction. If you're just approaching it like it's for fun, then the money will be for fun too. 
But if you're wanting to make a serious career out of it, you do have to educate yourself on the business behind content and the industry in general. And I think a big thing that we see that happens in the industry is people go from creating content, doing brand sponsorships, creating exclusive content, and then monetizing through a business, whether that's selling a product or a uh, service. I think we see people end up as business owners in the end of this, the people that are really successful. What is a day in the life of a successful creator look like? What are they doing? Not just content creation, but like the preparation that's going into it, the mental capacity. What are they doing? Yeah, I think it's going to depend on a lot on the creator. I think some people who are career creators, like I mentioned, like their day is going to look a lot different because they're integrating their content into like a full-time career. I think in general, you have to be responsive and have good communication. So whether that's, you know, meeting with brands, taking phone calls, checking your emails. I have met a lot of creators that are not good at communicating because, you know, creative types, like we're not good at being organized. So, you know, if organization is something you struggle with, don't hesitate to get someone to help you out with that. But being responsive, building relationships in that way, I think obviously engaging with your community is important, showing up online, whether that's in stories or posting or whatever that looks like in their creation space. I think that a lot of creators fly by the seat of their pants for a long time until it doesn't work anymore. And then they realize, you know, what I'm doing is either unsustainable or taking over my life in some kind of way. So brainstorming content, batching content, I think helps a lot with that so that you can have some personal life too. I think it's hard. I don't know if I said this earlier, but especially when your brand is you, you don't ever get a break. Like you don't get to take time off. So I think having time off and acknowledging that because just because it's in your hand doesn't mean you have to be working all the time. Because for us, checking your feed is not just, you know, looking to see what your friends are doing. It's also like you're at work. Some people would say spending time scrolling is unproductive. I think that that can be productive. So I do think creators need to stay engaged with what's happening online, but not like overdo it. Mm -hmm. The limitations and the boundaries for how long you're actually spending so you don't get sucked into the vortex. What are some tools in the toolbox for creators that they should be using to make their lives easier and their content more effective? There's a lot of things that could go into that. One thing that's helping me from like an organizational standpoint is flagging emails and then checking my flagged emails because I, you know, we all get so many junk emails. It's overwhelming. So I'm streamlining things in that way. Also a tool that like, I'm not sure how many people use, but has helped me a lot is Trello, which is like a boards app, like on your phone or on your computer. And you can organize things into like vertical. I'm very visual. So like having it in front of me and seeing, so like to stay organized for brand partnerships, I have a column that's like in negotiation, like, you know, done or like, you know, to film, filmed, posted, follow up type thing. And I can drag and drop the cards and it can, I can also put like how much 
that brand deal is paying. So that helps me plan my income because it's, you know, inconsistent as a creator. But um, I like having it like all visually in one place where I'm like, okay, cool. Next month I have this one due and this one due. I can see the dates on it. You know, I'm done with that one, but I should follow up with that one because I haven't talked to that agency in a while or whatever. So I think organizational tools, there's not really anyone catering organizational tools to creators right now. It's more like for agencies or like photographers or videographers. It's not like we do it all. You know, we're doing the negotiations and the editing and the, you know, filming and photos and like. There needs to be a one-stop shop, but there's not yet. So Charles is something that's helped me a lot. Sounds like a good business opportunity if you're feeling, you know. Right? <laughs> God, just what I need. Another um, another, another one. Another one. Um, I will also throw in there, because I'm going to tell you anyways. We may as well tell everyone listening. Have you ever heard of Shift? No. Shift CRM. You're getting a free sponsorship right now. They are the best. It is directly incorporated CRM into uh, Google Gmail. So what you can do is it actually will fly, like similar to what you're doing where you're labeling, which is great, but it'll actually automate some of the labeling process and it'll keep track of the day you last emailed them, notes about them, and it puts them essentially in a funnel. So from a creator standpoint, you could have partnerships sponsorships, PR opportunities, and follow up easily and put them into the system. And it's all built within Gmail. It is the best thing ever. Can you use it? Okay. So like my emails, I don't know if I said this, but I think like creators coming across as professional is so, 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 so important. I guess that kind of went with like the, make sure you're responsive. Like I think because I became I came from the dance world where it was like if you're shitty or like if you're bad at communicating and you're you're unreliable, like you're not going to get hired again. So I have a lot of anxiety 100%. about like communicating well. I mean, I, sometimes I, you know, I mess up, but just having that level of professionalism, like my email address, I pay to have like info at victoriajameson.com. Like it just looks better than it being like, you know. Victoria Jameson at gmail.com brand deals at gmail.com. Like it just doesn't oh, yeah. look like pay the like 99 cents a month to have a professional email. Like it makes you look 100%. so much more legit. Um, but what I was going to ask about that is if you have, um, can you plug it into outlook emails or does it have to be Gmail? Oh, good question. I don't know. I'll have I'm to a look Gmail into it. Through and through. Yeah. So my, my domain, that's why I was asking like the domain emails through GoDaddy are through outlook. So I don't know. Technology is, that's not even my wheelhouse, but my husband uses Outlook for work and I sat down and looked at it and I was like, no, this is, I don't know what to do with this. I still do it all through my phone. So it doesn't really matter. I feel like. Yeah. Another tool though, for the toolbox is templates And, and it's another Google thing, but I'm sure that Outlook has them, but email templates. What you can do is just plug in and write out a professional email that you would be happy with sending to sponsor deals. Like if someone's inquiring about a post, um, that'll automatically have your media kit link, all of your stuff. I also recommend influencers use linked media kits instead of PDF. 
I know that PDF mm. can be a little bit easier, but link, it's easier to update. So if someone does go back in time and they're like, I remember this girl, Victoria, I wonder what her rates were. And they go back to oh, last year. They look at the PDF. Genius. PDF can't change. But if it's a URL, you can always update your pricing based on market value and information there. Okay. So two things there. Okay. One. So I do the template thing, but I use my notes on my phone and I'll just name it like PR like, or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go and copy the email. I do have, I went into my, I work on my phone a lot. I'm just, I'm, I'm like, I'm one of those people, but you don't say <laughs> I, yeah, I'm just like, I would rather do it on my phone if I could. There's some stuff you can't, but, uh, I also like the shortcuts. Like, you know how you can, you can add shortcuts in your settings on like an iPhone. So when I type I in the word PR, it automatically goes, hi, my address for PR is Victoria Jameson, blah, blah, blah. So it, it automatically plugs it in. It does get annoying sometimes because it'll like, it'll plug it in on like normal conversations. So you might want to name it something that's like a little bit harder than just PR. Um, but that's really handy. I love it. What was the other thing I was going to say? You said... Um, Oh, the linked media kits. Okay. Do you recommend people putting pricing in their media kits? Because I have heard conflicting information. Some people, well, not conflicting, but you know, just different schools of thought. Some people are like, yes, put your rates in there, make it like packages that'll look like more professional. It'll give like more perceived value. And then you can negotiate from there. Some people say like, don't put your rates in because you never know if they're going to offer you more than that. Or if they don't have a budget or a very big budget, then they could just automatically like ghost you. Yeah. So I'll put my brand hat on really quickly. When we're running an influencer campaign, we already know the budget. Like we already know what we can work with. We're not going to come out generally and say right away, like, hey, here's how much we're going to offer you because we do want to see what rates you're going to come back with. It's kind of that negotiation tactic of like the first person to talk money is the one that loses. And that's not to say we're trying to take advantage of influencers, but we are because it is such a vast space. Everybody has different rates. Everyone values their work differently. So I would say there's no harm in being strong in your rate and saying, hey, this is my going rate. Let me know if that is aligned with your budget. And then if they come back and they say, hey, sorry, we can't make that work. Um, would you be able to do X, Y, or Z instead? You have the negotiating power to still say yes or no and to work with them or not. I do think that as you become more established and as you are getting more inbound requests, it is helpful to have your starting at pricing. So starting at still allows for you to have complexity within the campaign. That way you're not signing up for doing four videos for like super cheap. And you're like, how am I possibly going to have the time to do this? It's such a waste of my time, but it allows for you to negotiate. And then it's also going to weed out brands that you're like, I and can't like work with you because I don't have time and I need to prioritize my paying clients. So that would be my advice is like, you can't undersell yourself and you can't end up doing that. So if you are starting out or your rates are lower, like I would say if your rates are below a thousand dollars, maybe like don't have that included in the pricing and you can say pricing available upon request. Your but rate shouldn't be below a thousand dollars, no matter who you are. Yes, the they really shouldn't. But you would be surprised. 
surprised at what people I do. Oh, I'm, you would be surprised. <laughs> there are like people on TikTok that, sorry, I interrupted you, but there are people on TikTok that are charging. I want to ask you about rates in a second. So go ahead and finish your yeah. thought. That was pretty much it is like you do if you're under a thousand, if you're trying just to like really like hammer home as much as possible um, and get some brand deals under your belt, because there also is power in getting some under your belt so that you can show other brands the value that you provide, because that Absolutely. is what we look for. Like we and it depends on the client and what their ultimate goal is. But like we are looking actively at your numbers. We can see through the bullshit. We know when you're like. We know when you're buying likes, we know when you're buying followers, we like, we're aware of this. And then we're going to make the conscious decision of if we want to hire you for a certain rate, but in our head, we've already, the second we've like seen your profile, we've pretty much netted out the max amount we're going to pay you. So you do have some negotiating power. Um, but like, don't over, don't try to oversell yourself. If you know that you've got some BSers up in there. Cause it's not going to work. So what I'm curious, what you guys are seeing on the TikTok front. So like, I remember in 20, what would that have been? 2019. Um, my ex-husband was offered like a hundred dollars to do an ad, but he had like 400,000 followers. So I was kind of like, insulting. Eh. that's no, insulting. It is. So this is what I'm curious is if you're seeing that brands are starting to value TikTok content more now, or if, because there are so many more creators and so many that don't come at it from a business perspective and are underselling themselves because they just simply don't know. And you know what? Like he probably would have taken that brand deal if it hadn't been for our friends who one of them has over 10 million followers now. Like she's amazing. And she was like, do not take that like that. Do not take that. <laughs> like that is laughable, you know? And I think having those people around you, you know, like helping you set your rates and figure out, are you seeing that brands are valuing TikTok content more now, or they're still skeptical and trying to get, you know, whatever they can for free or so really cheap? There's different tiers when it comes to brands that are looking for influencers. The first tier that you're looking at are those smaller businesses. Like smaller businesses really do rely on influencer content. And depending on what you are doing um, and what your niche is, I, I mean, I love supporting small businesses. So if I was a creator, I think that I would kind of have like a category of like almost, we call it in kind in the agency world. And that pretty much means I'm doing this like for free in kind, but I'm still adding it on as like my bottom line at the end of the year as like work that I did within the influencer space, because I kind of believe in the product. I believe in the person, whatever. Don't ever agree that you absolutely are going to post something, but you can always say, Hey, I'll check it out. I'll see if I like it. And if I feel inclined, I will post about it. If you know you're not going to post about it, don't accept it because that's how you can get in really big trouble with brands, even beyond like that in and of itself. And give them honest feedback because that's what small businesses are looking for is like, hey, thank you so much for sending this. I didn't really like the taste. I didn't really like the color. I didn't really like the fit, whatever it is. But like if you did X, Y, or Z, I think it would be awesome. That's a really great way of staying authentic to your brand and not having to, you know, bullshit about like you liking a product, but it also, when they do make improvements, if they do, they're going to come back to you and they're going to pay you because you're helping them get better. So that's like the first tier. 
and I'm not talking about them right now, next year is like your middle of the road brands. And those are going to be ones that they do have marketing budgets, but they are not active on TikTok necessarily. They're dabbling in it, but they're not really there yet. They are going to have a harder time understanding the value of a TikTok partnership. And because of the life cycle of content, that's another thing that we look at. Like Pinterest, for example, Pinterest and working with bloggers who have a article on their website that lives forever. The life cycle of that piece of content is so much longer. We're going to pay them a premium because we know that pin, that pin's going to live a long time. So it's like, we're good with paying you guys all like the budget. We we're like, we, we're solid. We're set with TikTok the value in the life cycle still has to be sold to this crowd. Mm -hmm. Like you still have to be able to say how, like they're like, what am I getting for this? And a great way for creators that I don't see enough of, I like, I wish they did this more was come back and say, Hey, that budget doesn't really work for me right now. But what if we instead were to do four pieces of content over the course of X amount of months, like make it a partnership, give it a little bit of a like longer life cycle. One, because you're going to be getting better, interaction and engagement. It's going to look like a true partnership brand for the brand side. That's great for us because that actually means that we're getting like almost an endorsement level of engagement and interaction. And the person that you're talking to isn't the decision maker on the budget, but if you give them the plan to go to the decision maker and say, Hey, these, this influencer came back to me and came up with this kind of interesting proposal. What do you think? They're going to be like, Oh, that's super cool. Yeah. Let's do that. You know, like the likelihood of getting bought into that. And you just increased your revenue for you being able to batch your content and not have to work nearly as hard. So that's like the second level, third level high up. You're working with influencer agencies. These guys know through and through what the industry is. Um, I think that they're pretty like tuned into pricing and they're working on such a mass scale that they know what they can and can't get. So it's a rising tide raises all ships. And the more that influencers and creators do to be like setting their prices and working with market rate, like that's better for everybody. But when people I are totally coming agree. in and saying like, oh yeah, I guess I'll do that for free. I mean, as a brand manager, I have to represent the brand, even though internally I'm like, guys, 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 you can ask for more. It's okay. I know. (laughs) I like can relate so hard on that because I have done, like I did briefly work in social media at an agency managing content for brands. And uh, I've done like consulting behind the scenes for agencies, like negotiating brand partnerships essentially. And it's like, Okay, so as an agent with my agency hat on, I'm like, let's get the most amount of content we can. And there's totally going to be people that will do it for free and give you the rights in it for perpetuity. And then on the flip side of that, I'm like, raise your prices. Like, don't don't do anything for free. Like it's I, I can relate to like being you know, 22 and a brand wanting to send me something and being like, yeah, I'll do whatever you want. Like I mm-hmm. had all the time in the world, but now, you know, if I did something for free, every time a brand emailed me and said, like, I love it when they try to sell it as if it's like going to help you. Like, they're like, you're going to get a $250 product for free. All you have to do is spend seven hours making this piece of content for us. Like, it's like, what? And then we can use it forever. Yeah, like, like no, like, but people don't realize, I, th- I think there's just not enough conversation around it. I think part of it is because influencer marketing is such a new segment of the 
kind of content creation space, like traditionally we think of like videographers and photographers, like no one faults them for charging. I mean, people do, they still, no. I'm sure people still ask photographers to do stuff for free all the time and that's never going to change. But, um, people, I think just don't, I think people feel bad about charging for it. Cause they're like, well, it wouldn't take me that long and blah, blah, blah. But you're not also taking into account like your experience and your platform and the time and the phone payments you're making and the editing apps. And I mean, there's so much that goes into it. I'm very passionate there about is. creators getting paid because, you know, I think we might've talked about this on our call the first time we met, but I think when agencies are looking at creators, they're not always seeing them as not just agencies, but even internal marketing departments. They're not seeing them as a one-stop shop. Like, mm-hmm. not only are you a photographer, videographer, editor, talent, you're also the lighting guy. You're also the sound engineer. You're also the storyboard writer. You're also the social care manager. You're also the distribution. And traditionally, brands were spending, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars on traditional media. And we're seeing the power shift to social media. So I'm hoping that as that shifts and brands are putting their money in different areas, we are going to see, there's going to be a lot of value, I think, in being a professional creator. Oh, a hundred percent. And you bring up a really good point, which is the amount of hats that you're wearing as a creator and the amount of things that you're doing, even if you're like, Oh, I could do this in two seconds. It's not a really big deal. Of course you could do it. You're amazing. Like you've built this platform. You've done all these things. Like you have an innate talent that other people don't have. And you have an audience that has an interest in what you're doing. And thus, you have the ability to influence them to make a decision and a buying decision. And I will say, going back to that level of professionalism, the quality, it's not just like the quality of content you're putting out. Yes, that's part of it. But we care mostly about what the audience cares about. And then we care about how you handle it. And everything from your media kit to your emails, to your follow-ups, to your like communication, all of that, if you're sending through a timetable of like, hey, if there's internal reviews, like let's say that you've got that on the calendar, let's say, hey, I'm going to send you an internal review by this day with an aim of posting by this time. Let me know if you have any questions. Like even something as small as that is like, oh shit, these people have like their stuff together. It's like the the pie in the sky of like, I, I'll get it out in the next few weeks. To us as a brand manager, we're like, we're investing in you. And if you yeah. want us to invest in you, we're not doing charity work either. But if you can come forward and say, hey, I am not just like a pretty face or like a smart guy or a wicked talented girl. Like I've got a idea of how this runs. This is a business and I'm treating it as such. Then we're going to be like, OK, because I would never look at a production agency like a video production agency and ask them to do something for free yes. as a brand. Like I wouldn't do that, but that's because they're following up with timelines. They're sending emails through, they yes. are hopping on a call. They are concepting. They're sending through concepts. The work you're doing already, we just don't have visibility into that. And there's too right. many creators out there that cut corners because it is more effective and it is more efficient. And you are for the most part, a solo operator. Like you are the only person that's making decisions, thinking about things, whatever. But if you really want to take it to the next level and start getting paid like a video production agency, you need to start picking up some of the practices too. 100%. I And 
while you were talking about that, it made me think about how I think like you were saying from the more traditional blogger and like Pinterest and, and Instagram traditionally has been paid higher than I think what we were seeing on TikTok starting out. And I think part of that is the really fast growth on TikTok as people were becoming full-time content creators overnight and they just didn't even know how to handle that like career path. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes it was just so opposite from what they were already doing. I think it's interesting because I see influencers or content creator. I prefer the term content creator to influencer, but I see people coming from Instagram or traditional blogging and having, you know, 10,000 followers on TikTok, like, you know, a, a number that on Instagram would be a lot more impressive because the, it's so much harder to build a following there. And their prices are really high. Like when they, when you get their rates for partnerships, you know, they're charging a couple of thousand dollars. And I remember thinking like, how can they charge that much? Like they don't, like they don't even have a big following. Like they don't even know what they're doing, but like they're valuing their experience. They're valuing their presence across platforms. They're also more professional in presenting it than most, not most, but I would say than a lot of very, very large creators on TikTok. I think there is a lot of value in how you present it and how you sell it. And the great thing is those are all learned skills. And if you can't and don't want to take the time to learn it, there are people out there who are willing to do that for you for a fee, you know, for a cut, which I think there's small value price. in that too. <laughs> yeah. For the small, small price of 20% of all of your income. Um, but you know, it can make a big difference. Like if, if that's something that's hurting you, that is no, absolutely. You from increasing and it's your like, income. It's lost opportunity cost too. If you look back and you think about all the different times that you've had an opportunity to close a deal and you didn't, like mm, it hurts. Sometimes I look at my email and I'm like, oh, why did I not respond to that email? Like, but that's the, honestly the, I cannot pimp out virtual assistants enough. Like VAs are a godsend. I use one. I yeah. have to, like, I need I a can't. second me. Like I would like a virtual assistant, but I also would like someone to do like all of my editing. Like it's, I think it's a process. Do you find that you're a little bit of a, like, perfectionist when it comes to how things are done. Yeah, me yeah. too. So my tip to any other control freaks out there, cause I had the hardest time coming to terms with this. And I had worked with working with a career coach. Who's like, you need to punt. Like it's the only way grow. it's the only way to grow. You need to punt. Oh, and what I did was she had me write down a list of every single thing that I do in a day. And then like in my career, like all the things that I do, like how often I'm doing them estimated of how much time it's taking me and then check off like a few things that I was like, okay, I could hire somebody to do this. And like the first few things I checked off were such bullshit. Cause I was like, I just like, I was like, I can't let go of any of this stuff. But those first few things enabled me to find someone that could do those and start working with them. And then as I got to know them and how they operated, I'm like, okay, I trust her. Like, mm -hmm. yes, let's go ahead and let's take one more thing off of that list that I'm like, okay, can you do this for me? And she just does it. And it's the best. And it's like, okay, now you're starting to get to know me a little bit more. And that's really hard to do, especially when you have a very keen eye about everything, but oh my gosh, you can't build, you can't grow, you can't scale unless you learn to delegate. And yeah. that's been a hard lesson for me. It's hard too, because I, 
coming from like the money mindset of it, it's like, well, your consist your income's inconsistent as a creator. So you're like, like, do I want to pay someone to be doing these things? Like, what if I don't have as many brand deals that month? Um, so I think that that can be scary, but one thought that has come to mind as we've been discussing like brand partnerships, I feel like anytime I talk about the current like market space in social media, like there's so much discussion of partnerships and brand partnerships. I think that these upcoming generations like Gen Z and what's alpha Gen alpha, the younger generations, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've grown up with this product placement type of marketing. And I do think there's going to be a cap on how long it is effective for in a sense. I see a big trend in the market. Like I mentioned, the kind of trajectory of a lot of creators is brand partnerships are a big part of their income, but they end up shifting to being their own brand, like Mm -hmm. owning a business, whether that is like a service, like in the coaching or um, consulting space, or it's a product like the, the people that truly at this point are having long-term success are the people that have used their brand partnership money to build something more long-term that they have more control over, that they're not having to pimp their audience out to fashion Nova, you know, like that can only work for so long. So I think anyone that's a creator now that's listening to this, that, you know, you can't do sponsored ads forever. You, you maybe could, but I think it does get old. So having something that you can create long-term, whether that's by yourself or with a group of people, like a business, like a legit business is going to be valuable. Like look at Mr. Beast, like Mr. Beast does not do sponsored, sponsored stuff. He started his own businesses. Like that's how he makes income from it. Same thing with like Logan Paul and the, like the people that we're seeing the super long-term success with, that's what they've done. They're not just living off of brand partnerships. I love that. That's a really great point. What are the different ways that creators can turn their influence into paying careers? Oh man, there's a lot. So Obviously, we've been talking a lot about sponsorships. Um, People who are career-based influencers, it's funneling people to your business, whether it's a brick and mortar or an online-based service. There's also a lot of value if like you're in a certain space, like I'll use makeup for an example. If you're in the beauty space, there's like 10 different ways you can monetize that. You know, you can sell products to your audience through affiliate links. You can partner with other brands for sponsored posts. You can have a dedicated product with a brand and get a cut of that revenue. Some brands will pay you in equity if they really want to work with you. If you're, I mean, that's like on a very large scale, but I think on a smaller scale, sometimes when brands offer you equity, you're like, okay, that's bullshit Sketch. because you're, you don't exist very much yet, but okay. Cryptocurrency um, like creators. Yeah, like, yes, like <laughs> 5% of your company that is worth $0 right now is still $0, you know? Never accept equity unless you no. know the person. I had oh. a brand ghost me on paying me recently and then offer to pay me in equity. And I was like, so you can't, if you can't pay me right now, why would I accept equity as a form of payment? Uh, whatever. They're like our next round of funding. I'm like, no, be careful doing brand deals with startups is all I'm saying. Um, okay. Let's see. There's a bunch of different. Uh, I already said like affiliate linking. 
did I cover them all? Starting your own business, doing consulting, you could mm-hmm. do services, um, merch. I feel like, yeah, merch. Uh, I, I think merch. Yes. Everyone has off. the same merch right now. I'm sorry. I think it starts off as like a good concept, but the people who are doing really well with merch have basically turned it into a merchandising business. Like it's yeah. like a candle or whatever. Like it's not, you're not just selling your name on something. You're selling it because it is good. Yeah. If that makes sense. No, I for do sure. think people are going to be completely burnt out on consumerism in the next, like, especially going into a recession these next few years. Like I think, yeah, selling a service and selling value is going to start to, um, take precedent. One interesting thing I did see a creator doing is they are a clothing. I think they review clothing. Honestly, I have no idea who this is. So there might be other people that are doing this too. They review clothing and they have, um, a Patreon or something like that, or one of the crowdfunding type subscription-based models. Yeah, like the wall, paywall. But they don't take brand deals. They only do paywall-type stuff so that they can give completely honest, like, unbiased reviews. Yep. So, like, I think that that could take off in a way. I don't think that any platform's doing it in a really good way yet. I know. Don't talk about Angie's list that way. (laughs) (laughs) Wait. Oh, my gosh. Literally. And I forgot Angie's list existed. That's the OG. Mama said it was okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Same thing, though. Like, if if there's a creator that you really know and trust, if if you could pay them $1 a month so that they wouldn't have to take brand deals, like, I think people would go for that. So I, I do think consumerism... There, you know, you, you can only buy so much. Like, I think people are going to catch on. I think they are catching on. I think, I think it's important to build a brand outside of just relying on other brands to see your value. Yes, I would agree with that. And are you familiar at all with like web three? Yeah, a little, it hurts my brain. So like blockchain. Oh my gosh. I learned I'm not an expert by any means. I was just a sponge at South by this year. And I was like, I need to know because everyone's talking about it. And to me, it sounds like buzzwords in foreign language. Like I have no clue what you're talking about. And after talking to some people there, I was like, holy shit, this is going to change the entire creator landscape because I've heard good things. The most simple part of it though, is that I think it's a huge potential threat to social media channels because essentially it will allow for creators to have their own like channel. Like you, you have your, you are your Instagram, like you're your own thing and you're not paying Instagram and Instagram's not marketing on your platform. So you have an extra layer of your own commerce essentially on how like people are paying for your content. I just thought of something that I should have mentioned earlier when we were talking about like characteristics of like professional creators or full-time creators or what they're doing with their time collecting leads. Like I think because I came from the space of being like a service and like retail based business that, you know, that was when like Ty Lopez and 
Billy Jean is marketing or whatever his name. Like there's the people that do all the Facebook ads and like ran all the like, you can buy my course for $97, but today only it's $10. Like those people. Drip funnels up the butt. Yes. Click funnels, like all that stuff. I mean, that was really, really big when I had first started my business. Um, So the value in that though, is that using these platforms like TikTok to collect leads by offering a free PDF or whatever, or video or secrets to making the best keto lasagna, like those things build your audience. And then if your TikTok was to disappear overnight, which it's been known to for some people or Instagram or whatever, at least you have that. Like, I think there's a huge, I like text message funnel marketing as well. Like I have a text message system set up for the people that listen to my podcasts. Like they can text in and I send out like TikTok trends that I see when I see them and it's free. Like, but then I do have those leads because if something were to happen and suddenly I don't have my platforms anymore, like you got to have something. So collecting leads is something that everyone should be doing. 100%. Absolutely. And that's a really good reminder for anyone who has been under the idea that their TikTok is theirs. Like it's not TikTok's no. not yours. Your Instagram's not yours. It could, if it goes away tomorrow, what's she doing? How you doing? Like, and it you, happens. It does. Like, you hear about it all the time. Like, especially with all like during like politics, when people get into politics online, like your platforms are definitely at risk because everything is so polarizing these days. Like, if someone Even mass reports no, your content, you're screwed. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah. Just like trolling. For no like, reason. No, for literally yeah. no reason. And you're dealing with platforms that have such a huge amount of inbound messages and requests. You're not going to get someone that's going to fix it. No, they have you're not zilch. And I'm coming from a space where like we spend a lot of money. And we're still having issues getting customers. Oh, yeah. I can't even imagine. I remember in like 2015, my ad account or like 16, maybe my ad account on my Facebook page was disabled for no reason. Like just no reason. And you never got it back? I got it back this year. Six years later. (laughs) Seven years later. Okay. So. Oh, that gives me hope. I have an ad account that is like lost in the wind. You just have to be aggressive. I was like literally emailing them being like, I don't understand why this is. I think I broke. Girl, I love the commitment that I did. (laughs) I know. Like once a year I would be like, let me harass the Facebook robot. Um, (laughs) Now, of course, I don't even use it. But like at the time it was devastating. Um, well, it's Instagram I, too. Yeah. Oh, same. I mean, they're the same thing now. And same thing with TikTok. Like if you don't have a community manager and your account gets shut down, you're basically screwed unless you know someone that has one. And then they tell us not to give out contact info. So then you're like, I don't know how to help you. Like just email them a bunch. Yeah. And this is that point. If anyone is ever advertising on Instagram or Facebook, please, please, for the love of God, use business manager, like do not do it in platform, use business manager, learn how to use it because that's going to protect you. Do it because that's a layer of protection. Cause what'll happen is if you're advertising at the platform level, like if you're advertising directly on Instagram, it's through your page, but the hierarchy is that above that can be a business manager. So let's say that 
at the page level, it gets banned. That whole page is banned. Like there's nothing you can do. You can't go to a different business manager. But if the business manager gets banned or has an issue, you can always move the page to a different one. Interesting. And start fresh. Man, so, the whole Facebook thing. There's a hierarchy. I know. The Facebook or like meta. I hate Facebook. The meta like back end of all this stuff. Now, like my Facebook is a digital creator account. I don't even know what's happening. Like it gives me anxiety. No idea. I don't. What does that mean though? Like I have no idea. Facebook knows that they're investing so much in Web3 right now and blockchain. They know it's not going to last for the next 10 years. Like it's going to taper and, and that's why I think, else. yeah, like you were saying, like people are going to have control over their pages. Like that's what everyone yeah. is so frustrated about. I think that's why we saw other platforms that were created during the election because people yeah. felt like they were being silenced or whatever, whether that was actually happening or not. That's a whole nother topic. But I think with the blockchain developing now, like I want to learn more about it. But it's so overwhelming. Like I think you it have is to really like, overwhelming. Ah, I'm going to have someone on the podcast to talk about it. Oh, I'll listen to it. Yeah. I think because everything I see about it, like I ask people like, where do I even get started? And they're like, well, buy my course. And I'm like, no, I just want to know what it does. Like, no, like I'll buy you a drink. Like, yeah, I'm like, just (laughs) tell me, send me a one minute long voice memo with some cliff notes here. Okay. Like I, I think that, um, the creator marketplace is, is not going away. It's just yeah. going to continue to shift. And I think as more and more people wise up to how valuable they are to these big brands, there will be a lot more money put into the space, hopefully. I, would I think agree my with favorite that. are the brands that already see it. And they're just like, yep. Like they don't even question your rate. They're just like, cool. We got you. That's Let's the best. Go. We need more oh, I love when I get to do that. I love when I get to do that. Victoria, it was so awesome having you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Pimp yourself out. Where can people find you, follow you, consume all the content that you create and love on you? Yeah. So on TikTok, I am at Victoria, just my first name. On Instagram, it's at Victoria Jameson. That's Jameson, like the whiskey. My podcast is called TikTok Radio, like a talk show, where I interview TikTok creators about their journey on the platform and how they're monetizing and running their business or if they're even running a business. So that's that. And we are relaunching with a video format in August of 2022. So coming up soon here. Maybe this episode already be out by then, but... And you can go listen to that on any podcast platform or you can go to tiktokradio.com. And then you have such a wealth of knowledge. You know so much about the space. How can people learn from you? Yes. So I do offer like individual consulting, but right now I'm getting ready to relaunch my signature course, which is called TikTok Accelerator. I like to say it's the original TikTok Accelerator because I bought the domain in 2019. And um, I'm t- I've totally revamped it because the platform has changed so much since the first time I put it together. So um, that's going to be like beginning to end TikTok crash course, everything from how to make your account to monetizing as a creator and building your brand online. So it's kind of a, an overview of everything for content creators and small businesses. Go check it out, everybody. Victoria, thank you so much. Have a fabulous rest of your week. Yeah, thanks for having me. 
Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Social Complex Podcast. Your support means the world to me. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, be sure to leave a five-star rating and subscribe to our show. We'll be releasing a new episode every Tuesday, bringing you various stories, deep dives, and discussions around the complexities of social media in our modern world. To follow along for more, be sure to follow us at Your Social HQ on Instagram or check out Social HQ at www.yoursocialhq.com. I'm your host, Hillary Applegate, and I'll see you back here next week. Stay sane out there.